looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. I'm your host, Peter Welch, Vice President of Public Affairs, and this week we're taking an in-depth look at a case before the Wisconsin Supreme Court, Mayo versus the Injured Patients and Family Compensation Fund. This case has challenged the constitutionality of Wisconsin's cap on non-economic damages in medical liability cases and promises to have a far-reaching impact on healthcare in our state. In fact, the cap was removed last July following a decision by the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. That decision was appealed, and last month, the Society filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court. To tell us more about the case and its significance for healthcare in Wisconsin, I'm joined today by John Rather, the Society's General Counsel. John, welcome. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be here. As I said in the intro, the Society has filed an amicus brief in this case, Mayo versus the Injured Patient and Family Compensation Fund, or FUND for short. Before we get into the specifics of this case, could you first tell us two things? First, what is an amicus brief? And second, what is the fund? Sure. So an amicus brief, it's short for amicus curiae, and it means friend of the court. So the society files amicus briefs in cases that we have an interest on behalf of our members in the outcome. So that could involve medical liability, uh, patients' right to, or patients' ability to access affordable health care, the health care environment in general. There's situations where we're not a direct party to the case, but we have some expertise and a specific viewpoint that would be helpful in educating the court as to the ramifications and the implications of its decisions. Um, now, with regard to the fund, the fund was created back in 1975 as a group of medical liability reform, and there's only less than 10 in the country, uh, 10 states that have this type of a fund that provides uh, an excess layer of medical liability insurance beyond the primary layer that every physician and other types of healthcare providers are required uh, to maintain. So it, it's a unique system in the medical liability world, and Wisconsin is relatively unique among states in the level of protection it provides through the fund. The fund is, uh, for lack of a better term, funded by assessments that are charged uh, to physicians and other participants to uh, pool the money together to pay the claims of those that uh, are injured by medical negligence. So why is this fund in, why is this important for the healthcare climate here in Wisconsin? The fund is really a centerpiece of, of making Wisconsin a, a great place to practice medicine. It, at the same time as it provides um, an unparalleled level of protection for patients by ensuring that um, they have this avenue to recover in the case that uh, medical negligence occurs, it also ensures that physicians can practice without having to worry about personal financial exposure, that they can make decisions in the best interest of their patients without worrying about the financial ramifications of liability. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have this unique, well-balanced system, and Wisconsin is uh, consistently rated as one of the top states in the country for healthcare quality such as it was by AHRQ in 2016. So within a fund like this, when a patient makes a claim uh, or it gets paid out, there's economic and non-economic damages. Can you tell us what's the difference and what sort of limits are imposed on, uh, on those different kinds of damages? Yep. So Wisconsin has a cap on non-economic damages 
in excess of $750,000 in a, in a particular case. And what that means is there's two general categories of damages assigned um, when there's already been found a verdict that someone is at fault. Uh, the jury assigns economic damages and non-economic damages. Economic damages are the things that you can calculate, like past and future medical bills, past and future wage loss, or say um, in a death situation, it could be burial expenses or things like that. You can put a tangible dollar amount to them using math. Um, Non-economic damages, on the other hand, are, are the less tangible things. Um, they're things like pain and suffering, uh, disfigurement, embarrassment, or uh, if the spouse makes a claim as well, it could be things like loss of society and companionship. Um, those are things that different people will put different dollar values on. Um, so they're considered non-economic. It doesn't mean that they're lesser. So Wisconsin's cap is only with regard to the non-economics portion of a verdict. Um, Wisconsin's system does not in any way cap the amount of economic damages that are recoverable in a medical liability suit. So theoretically, they, this fund would cover any damages from the economic sense, any tangible you know, loss of salary, all that kind of stuff. That's going to be covered. But we do have a cap on non-economic, the pain and suffering. Well, not just theoretically, and uh, we'll use this case as an example. Um, I'll provide a little background on the facts first. Um, so Mrs. Mayo, the, the plaintiff in this case, went into the ER with some somewhat common symptoms, things like fever and acute abdominal pain in 2011, underwent a battery of tests, and was, uh, at the end of the day, diagnosed with fibroids and told to follow up with her OB. The next day, she went into a different ER with worsening symptoms and was eventually diagnosed with a septic strep A infection uh, that had spread throughout her body and resulted in what was termed at trial as a, a quote, medical tsunami uh, that eventually resulted in amputation of all four of her limbs. Now, she sued and the defendants included both a physician and a PA and the jury actually found that the the physician and the PA were not negligent with regard to their diagnosis or care of Mrs. Mayo, um, but they found that they did fail to provide adequate information about alternative modes of diagnosis and treatment. Basically, they, they failed to uh, obtain informed consent for what they did. Now, just a side note, that was under an informed consent standard that has been changed since this occurrence, that um, it used to be under what was called a reasonable patient standard. Now. Since 2013, the law is a reasonable physician standard. So just kind of a, an example of the legacy of old laws following through. But the jury did find that there was uh, some negligence and therefore awarded damages, including $8.8 .8 million in economic damages. So pain and suffer, or I'm sorry, uh, past and future medical expenses and wage loss, and then awarded $16.5 million in non-economic damages. 15 of which was for pain and suffering, 1.5 million of which was for loss of society and companionship of Mr. Mayo. Based on Wisconsin's system, Mrs. Mayo has already been paid through the combination of the uh, physician's underlying medical liability insurance as well as the existence of the fund. She has already been paid every cent of her economic damages that was awarded by a jury, as well as $750,000 in non-economic damages, so every cent up to the cap. So earlier when we said, theoretically, this is how it works, 
this is how it works. And it's a tangible benefit that Wisconsin patients have that very few in other states uh, benefit from. So how does this suit and the, the challenge above this non-economic set of damages, how does that change sort of the landscape of, of the fund and, and physician practicing in Wisconsin? So the fund has a tall order, and there's a reason that not many exist throughout the country. It has to, by state law, guarantee the ability to pay every cent of economic damages plus any amount of non-economic economic damages up to the cap in any potential medical liability lawsuit. That's really hard to predict, um, both in terms of the number of suits filed and uh, their success at trial and the amount of damages awarded by a jury. So actuaries attempt to do so. It's understandably a conservative estimate because if you get it wrong, somebody's going to go without getting paid. Well, because it seems, it seems odd to me because you can say that somebody, you're putting a cap on non-economic damages because otherwise the sky's the limit, right? Because how, mu how much money can you put on my pain and suffering, right? I mean, this is, this is the challenge there. With economic, you can kind of guess what the, you know, what somebody might make for the rest of their life, what, what sort of, you know, tangible economic, we can calculate that. There, there's data to back that up, right? But it seems to make sense to have a cap on non-economic damages because otherwise the jury might just think of a big number and say that's what they ought to be given, right? Certainly that's a possibility, though we're less concerned with the idea of, you know, quote, runaway juries or things like that. It has more to do with what is the most beneficial to an injured patient. Um, and the Wisconsin legislature has made a, a judgment that first and foremost, we want to make sure that people can get the medical care and be provided with a replacement of their wages mm -hmm. for the injury that they've suffered. That's priority number one. Then after that, can we provide a reasonable measure of non-economic damages in a way that um, provides adequate compensation without um, providing a risk, an unreasonable risk, to the ability to pay those benefits. So uh, without any type of cap, it would put at risk the fund's actuarial soundness and its ability to pay these damages in the future that Mrs. Mayo has already received. So just to put it in context, there's approximately nine states that have active patient compensation funds. There are none that do not have some measure of cap on their ultimate exposure, the amount of money they have to pay in a given case. Uh, they basically fit into three categories. So you have those that don't provide unlimited excess exposure, like Pennsylvania or South Carolina or New York, where they fund an additional layer, but then if the damages are above that, uh, the patient is on their own to find a source to actually collect on that. You have a second bucket in the form of Indiana and Nebraska that have funds that pay every cent of what a patient is entitled to by law, but then cap the total amount of damages that a patient can recover. And in both states, it's under $2 million. Then you have a third bucket in the form of Louisiana, New Mexico, and Wisconsin that pays every cent of damages in excess of the primary limits allowed by law, and allowed by law includes the application of a cap on non-economic damages. So in none of these, is there a system anywhere in this country for medical liability uh, that pays 
the guarantees payment of the total amount of uh, a verdict, no matter what that amount is, uh, because it would be impractical, almost irresponsible, to be able to rate that risk and to charge uh, the participants in the fund enough money to account for that risk without defeating one of the main purposes of the system, which is to provide a level of predictability and affordability and liability insurance. Hmm. So, so I'm, I'm just going to back up and summarize briefly. So we, we have this really unfortunate case where Ms. Mayo ended up you know, getting suing, getting awarded non-economic damages above the legislatively set cap. First, this dumb question, how, how can the jury do that? How can they just choose a number that is outside of the state statute? And then what happens because they did that? Yeah, great question. So the jury doesn't know about the cap, and they shouldn't. Their job is to, um, to answer the questions put to them, which is how much would you award uh, the patient in order to account for their damages? What happens with the cap is it gets applied after that, between the verdict, which gives the dollar amount, and the judgment, which is what you use to actually collect on. And so in the Mayo case, for example, there was a challenge to the constitutionality of the cap even before trial. Hmm. And what the, the county level judge said is, I'm not going to say the, the cap is unconstitutional as a whole. I am going to uh, say that it is legal and enforceable in this case. But then after the verdict, there was an additional request to declare unconstitutional just as applied to the facts of the case, saying that it didn't um, warrant applying the cap here because it would be too unfair. And the judge was sympathetic to that and said, yes, I don't believe applying the cap to these particular facts would be in the legislative interest that underscore why the cap exists. So the jury doesn't know, and it's not supposed to know, that the cap exists. It's supposed to be done by the judge after the fact. And the judge here felt that um, they couldn't apply the cap because it would be um, unfitting to the purpose of it. So the judge makes that ruling, and then what happens to that decision from that point? Uh, both sides appealed, actually. So uh, <laughs> the fund appeals saying, no, you should have applied the cap. And actually, the plaintiffs appealed and said, no, we think the cap is always unconstitutional, not just in this case. And that set up what is arguably the, the most important medical liability case in this state in, for certain, the last five and arguably the last 10 years. Um, it was briefed at the Court of Appeals and actually engaged in this, this game of hot potato where the parties wanted the Supreme Court to just take it right away. The Supreme Court said no. Then the parties briefed it, including the society filed an amicus brief uh, along with the hospital association and the AMA. Then the, the Court of Appeals said, uh, based on something called certification, we'd rather Supreme Court decide it. We don't want to decide it. And the Supreme Court said no. So that was back to the Court of Appeals again. The Court of Appeals issued a decision in July saying uh, we find the cap to be unconstitutional on its face, meaning always. So it went even further than the, the county level judge had gone. And then the parties asked the Supreme Court to take this case on appeal, which the Supreme Court didn't have to do. And the, the society actually filed a brief asking and urging it to do so, and it ultimately did. So it's important to underscore in all this, Peter, that as of July 5th, 2017, there has been no cap on non-economic damages in medical liability cases in Wisconsin. We currently do not have a cap in effect. 
it's quite sobering, I think, for all of our uh, physicians out there. And this is this is unique. Is this are we the only state that currently has no cap of these nine that that have funds like this? Of the ones that have excess funds that are comprehensive, yes. So there are a few states that have just a middle layer access fund. New York comes to mind, where the the physician is required to have a million dollars in underlying coverage, and New York provides an additional million. They don't have a cap on damages, but they have a way of controlling the exposure of that excess fund because it only provides an amount. Of the half dozen states that provide what I would call a comprehensive patient's compensation fund that covers all amounts up to the amount allowed by law, yes, we are the only one right now without a cap. And by the way, a majority of states in this country have some form of cap on damages and medical liability. So we were the fi- the fight is set. Sort of that we have the, the the fighters in both corners here on 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 this issue. So we've got we've got on on the one side the people who say there should be a cap. It was set by the legislature. It's good economic sense. It it exists for a reason. And the other side, you say there should not be a cap. Can you can you wear both hats and tell me sort of you know from one side and the other break down what are the key points of their arguments. Sure. So the the side that says there shouldn't be a cap, their main reasoning for that is that it burdens those that are injured, that they would say injured by medical negligence, um, in order to benefit those that are providing the health care. They say, and the Court of Appeals said this, um, that you are creating a system in which those that have uh, less injury, where their damages are not in excess of the cap, get the entire amount awarded by a jury. Whereas those with more substantial injuries that result in higher damages that are in excess of the cap, they don't get every cent that was awarded by the jury. It gets artificially capped by, um, by statute. And they say that's unfair, and in constitutional terms, they say that it violates equal protection because it treats it puts people in different buckets under the law without um, a rational basis. And rational basis is the term that gets used because that's the, the standard that the law is up against. Is there a rational basis between the existence of the cap and its effect as to why it exists? Um, and this isn't the first time we've looked at caps in Wisconsin. Back in 2005, uh, there was a Wisconsin Supreme Court case challenging the previous cap on non-economic damages, which was at $350,000 instead of the current $750,000. And uh, a plurality in that case, so a majority but by different factions, (laughs) said that the cap was unconstitutional in that case uh, for the same reasons, uh, that it violated equal protection. Now, what those that are uh, in favor of the cap and, and put us among them is that it is rationally related to multiple benefits to the healthcare uh, system as well as, and even more so, I would argue, to the patients themselves. So what the legislature did after the 2005 decision striking down the previous cap is it went to school on that decision and it formed a task force to do the deep dive into what caps do, why they work, what their limits are, what their practical impacts are. Uh, It received testimony, for example, from recruiters for health systems that said the lack of a cap in the state was uh, leading them to have problems recruiting physicians to the state of Wisconsin because they viewed it as a potentially hostile medical liability environment. 
and that they look for states that had a cap. That's a tangible impact on patient access to high quality care based on whether there's a cap or not. Uh, the, the task force put together recommendations to the legislature. By the way, that task force had one physician member on it, <laughs> our own current CEO, uh, Bud Chumley, who was then, I think, the medical director for uh, a multi-specialty group in Milwaukee area. So uh, we've had a long history on this issue. <laughs> so then the legislature looked at that and passed a new cap and specifically stated in the statute the rationale as to why they thought the cap was important to um, providing patients ultimately with this balance of access to high quality health care as well as adequate compensation for those that are injured by uh, medical care, medical negligence. So it's a balance and the legislature is uniquely positioned to weigh all those factors in creating what they think um, is the best system. And frankly, it's worked pretty well. Is that typical in, in other states that the that the state lawmaking body is the one setting these caps? Yes, almost entirely. Um, it, and that gets more into how a bill becomes a law, but the courts really are there to determine whether a cap is constitutional or legal in other senses. It is not upon the court to decide whether one should exist um, and create one on its own. That's something the legislature can hear testimony, can, can get the full picture and make value judgments based on the representative system as opposed to a court who's really more there to take a more narrow examination of it. Hmm. So at the heart of this, is this, does this come down to the argument about individuals and their rights of sort of equity under the system to get everything that's due to them? Or is this coming down to an issue of Whose turf is this to decide? Is it the legislature or is it the, the court? So, the, and this is where the role of an amicus party like the Medical Society, Wisconsin Medical Society, comes in because the parties are arguing issues like turf. They would call separation of powers or judicial um, role versus legislative. That's not our focus. Our focus is to point out the, the purposes behind the cap and the practical impacts it has. So we think we've taken a little bit different approach this time around and one that we think is very important. And that is to say the cap has a lot of benefits to the healthcare community that ultimately impact the patient. It uh, provides a level of predictability that helps keep medical liability insurance affordable uh, and ultimately healthcare costs affordable. It disincentivizes defensive medicine um, by preventing physicians from worrying about their own financial uh, liability and focusing more on patient care and it helps us attract and retain high-quality physicians in this state by providing a well-balanced system those are all very important but what's in our estimation even more important is the additional level of protection that's provided to patients through this system that the cap helps ensure and it's interesting because the Court of Appeals decision in this case said that this system is unconstitutional because it burdens the most severely injured patients the most. That being the ones with the highest damages have their damages reduced by more as a result of the cap. They got the outcome right, but they got their reasoning, in my belief, exactly wrong. And that is that the cap is actually most beneficial to the most severely injured patients. And here's why. When you're injured in a lawsuit, 
getting a judgment, the amount of money that you're entitled to for compensation is important. But what's more important is the ability of someone to pay you that money. And the higher the damages amount that you're entitled to, the harder it is to find those deeper pockets to actually pay you. So for example, in a car accident, Wisconsin requires a driver to have $25,000 minimum in insurance, uh, liability insurance. If Mrs. Mayo had suffered these same injuries as a result of a car accident, she would have the same damages, the same uh, judgment could have been issued, let's say $25.5 million approximately, and there might be $25,000 in insurance coverage. And after that, she's not going to receive a cent, very possibly. In other states in medical liability, same situation. There are states where a physician isn't required to have any medical liability insurance. So a patient could have $25.5 million judgment and not know if they'll be able to collect a single cent on it. In Wisconsin, they are guaranteed by the existence of the uh, primary insurance as well as the fund to receive every single cent of economic damages awarded by that jury plus an additional $750,000 in non-economic damages. That is a level of protection that the patient carries with them going into the exam room that is unique among any other type of plaintiff in Wisconsin as well as any other patient in the country. And the cap is really the linchpin that allows it to occur. Because as I said earlier, there is no state that can provide, has been able to provide a comprehensive, unlimited access uh, insurance fund for patients that doesn't in some way cap that exposure because it, you just wouldn't be able to do it without um, having either huge swings in assessments or as in the case of South Carolina, which used to offer something like that, uh, it being actuarially unsound. And I think they had to discontinue that option when they were 40 million underwater uh, in their exposure for it. So Wisconsin's system, this, this uh, unique benefit of the comprehensive system works because we have a cap. And it's no coincidence that when the original law was passed in 1975, it included a contingency for a cap to go into effect um, if the fund fell below a certain level. It's there to protect the fund, which provides just this unmatched and uh, amazing, frankly, level of protection for patients. Um, so I, we think that's a new discussion point that wasn't really examined by the court back in 2005. It hasn't really been covered by the parties. And frankly, it's something I, I'm proud that we're putting forward to say we're proud to pay into the fund to provide this level of excess coverage for our patients. We're proud of the system, and it's working. And there's no reason to change it as a result. So this is going to the Supreme Court. It's in their hands. And let's say that it's upheld that there's no, no more cap. What happens in the environment in Wisconsin for healthcare? Like what, paint me a picture, what could we see maybe happening? Sure, so you never know for certain because frankly we haven't had to face that for a long period of time. There was a brief period of time between 2005 and 2006 when we operated without a cap. In that time span the fund had its two largest claims against it. So we, we know from that that the, the uh, size of claims the fund has to pay out is likely to go up. Yeah, you'd, see, you'd probably see more litigation, right? you see more people say, hey, there's, there's a big price tag out there that I can access because there's no cap. Well, and that would be more the frequency of claims, and that is something that we'd be afraid of as well, um, that it becomes a very inviting target um, for claims that maybe wouldn't otherwise have been brought um, based on merit alone.
So the other possibility is that the fund could then have to raise rates on those that participate in the fund to account. Actually, it's not a possibility. It will happen, quite frankly, because the fund charges assessments based on its likely level of liability. If the liability goes up because there's no more cap, the fund will raise assessments on providers. And that's the whole reason that the cap exists, is to keep assessments level, to keep medical liability insurance reasonable, to provide less disincentive in terms of liability exposure for physicians to come to this state. So the initial impact might be in the fund's exposure, but it's going to be seen in other areas as well. So if the assessments are going up, if, if we're seeing more claims, if we're seeing maybe sort of a less physician-friendly environment, this, this dovetails on a lot of what the society cares about when it relates to physician workforce, which ties directly into access to health care. We know that in rural areas in Wisconsin, well, everywhere in Wisconsin, there's a need for primary care physicians for lots of different specialties. And when we know that when we have a physician in, a, in an area, the likelihood that people can come and see them and access that health care is increased as well. So can you tie this back into how a cap like this affects the physician workforce? Absolutely. And we've already, we heard testimony on this in 2005, and we've already heard about uh, fears of this happening since the cap has been removed this past July. And that's, we hear from physician recruiters that the medical liability environment is a big factor in where physicians choose to practice. For example, uh, Illinois had a cap on damages. When it was removed, the percentage of residents that studied there and then left the state of Illinois went up. Wisconsin's rate of retention is pretty good nationally, um, in part because we have this well-balanced medical liability system. So the data would say that there is a good chance that the number of physicians that we can attract and retain would be impacted by that. And that ultimately goes to a patient's ability to access high-quality care in the state. How many physicians are there per capita to treat that same number of people in the state of Wisconsin? So the stakes are high you know, for, for all of us as citizens of Wisconsin and, and our physician population here. Certainly it's important to the medical society. What is next? What, what's the timeline? What can we expect? What are we expecting from us as the medical society as well? Briefing is finished in the case. Oral arguments have been scheduled for April 19th, where the parties will have the ability to answer any questions the, the justices on the court have. Because it's being argued this term, we anticipate a decision sometime between May and July. So we should know one way or another uh, the outcome of this case. So the Supreme Court could say the, we reversed the Court of Appeals and the cap is restored, which would be, we think, the appropriate outcome. Or it could say that we agree with the Court of Appeals and there is no cap, in which case we would have to look at ways to mitigate the impact of that and what to do next working with other stakeholders. But you know, I, I'm, I'll say I'm cautiously optimistic that the Supreme Court is going to see uh, the wisdom of the cap, and I think we're, we're headed for some good news in July. I think there's a good chance of that. Great. Well, I really appreciate you shedding some light on this, and uh, I think we're really glad to have you here on board uh, at the Medical Society, and thanks so much for what you do. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be here. Well, that will wrap up this edition of WISMED On Call. If you like what you heard, visit our website, www.wisconsinmedicalsociety.org, 
and look for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got suggestions or feedback, send an email to communications at wismed.org. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.